If you're visiting with us this morning, we are currently studying through the, the New Testament book by book. began in the book of Acts, and we're going all the way through Revelation, praying that the rapture happens before that. be great. We came back today. So if you're visiting with us, we want to welcome you. We're very serious about the study of God's Word, and we're growing in we're growing in the knowledge of his word together, and we're very excited to be able to do that as a family. Second John, let's begin in verse 1. The elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have heard, had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves, that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I do not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full." The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we're excited about another book that we get to look at verse by verse together as a family. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand everything you want us to understand and how to apply everything that you show us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. We want to be made more like you as a result of sitting at your feet and learning from you. We ask that your Spirit would be our teacher this morning. Father, and we pray, Lord, that um, you would use these verses in our lives, Lord, to, to, to help us to bring glory to you. We thank you for the, the fact that we get to live a different kind of life and not be the same people we used to be, Lord, those of us that know you. So we pray that you'd set this time aside for your holy use as we have asked for the, the, the previous part of our time together. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it has been said that second, not only Second John, but also Third John would be better described as a postcard rather than a letter. Where did postcards go? <laughs> I mean, who, it's like we just send pictures and text pictures and all these things, but there are postcards still. I mean, we, we don't see a lot of them anymore, but uh, they exist and they're a blessing when you're traveling somewhere and you, you don't have much space to write, though, and you just have to get be to the point. Some of us, that's a... That's hard for us to do that, to get to the point. 
Uh, we want to ramble on and on and so forth. But here John, he just has these, this short little book here. And third John, is, we'll look at next week. And, you know, this week we're looking at 13 verses. Next week, 14 verses. By the way, who read ahead and did their homework assignment? Oh, brave hands going up. Actually, it would be brave hands to raise your hand if you didn't do the, the homework assignment. But there's no condemnation. No condemnation. But if you didn't hear, because I heard from someone that they didn't hear that that was the homework assignment. So just now, just know that for next week, 3 John, that's your, that's your homework. There won't be a test, so don't worry about it. But uh, it's great to, to, to be able to read ahead. So this, this is, these are short little letters. And, and remember, this is just like 1 John. This has been 50 to 60 years since the cross. The Apostle John is the last living apostle. He's very young when he was first publicly called to, to follow Jesus. So he, he was very, very young in his teens probably. And so now he's in his 80s or 90s. And, and it, it, most people believe that he wrote this at the same time he wrote 1 John. And so he kind of wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John all together. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but a lot of people believe that. So he's, he's older now. He's elderly and he's the last living link of the apostles to the church. And so they, he's lived a long life of walking with Christ. He's, he's walked way longer without Christ's physical presence than he did walking with him for the three years or so that the Lord Jesus was on this earth. So he, he is longing for Christ. He is longing to have that, that, that intimacy with him in, a, in, in the sense of a physical presence that he, that he had. And so it, it's been a long road for John. History records that they attempted to boil him in oil, and it didn't work. <laughs> uh, and, and so he survived that. I don't know the specifics of it, but it, apparently he survived that. And then he was exiled to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the Revelation, where he recorded the Revelation. And then later, he was um, released, and he was um, allowed to go wherever he wanted, and he, he chose Ephesus. So he stayed in Ephesus, and uh, history records that he died about 100 years old uh, there in Ephesus. So he's gone through a lot, and he spent, he spent his last days helping the church, building up the church, and so forth. And just like in the book of First John, as we just finished, uh, he is going to deal with, and he is forced to deal with, this subject of false teachers. As we saw in 1 John, he was dealing with these Gnostic false teachers who believed that all physical matter is evil and thus God would never come in human form uh, because our flesh is, is sinful and, and uh, flesh is evil, so God would never take on a human body. And, and also, their physical bodies, these false teachers, they didn't believe that their physical bodies represented their spiritual health. So they could just do whatever they wanted related to sin, and they said, oh, that doesn't represent my spirit. That's a little bit convenient <laughs> for the sinful nature there. So he's dealing with these false teachers, and he's going to warn them against doctrine, but he's going to focus in on something else in this book. And, and we're going to see him focus on doctrine, yes, but more importantly, or not more importantly, but, but in addition, or mainly in this book, he's going to focus on the subject of love. And we, he looked at that, we saw that last time through, throughout the whole book of First John, but he's going to deal with loving in a little bit different way. What he's going to focus on, he's going, to, he's going to talk about how to properly love. And what I mean by properly love is loving, uh, having our love governed by something. Our love is supposed to be governed by truth. See, they knew they were supposed to love, and they were loving. 
And of course, they were growing in love, just like we're growing in love and so forth. But they, they knew that they were to love, but the, they had a problem, and that was that their love was not governed by truth. And that's a, re, a really key word in this, in this book, the word truth. It actually appears five times just in the first four verses alone, the word truth. I love the concept of truth because I was deceived before I came to know the Lord 24 years ago. I was deceived. I, w- I thought a lot of things. I thought a lot of crazy things. And everybody has an opinion. I know you ever notice that? People just have a lot of opinions about things and philosophy and religion. And everybody's an expert on the Bible, especially the ones that have never read it. <laughs> no, they just, they know everything about the Bible. They, they, they read it some, I mean, there are a lot of believers that have ne- they've spent many years walking with Christ and haven't read the Bible from cover to cover. So it's highly unlikely that unbelievers are going to make it from Genesis to Revelation all the way through and have read the whole book. I know it happens, but it, it, it's, there's a difference between reading and just going, you know, kind of looking through it and, okay, yeah, I see that. And, you, you know, you're kind of, oh, yeah, I, I read the Bible, you know, and I'm an expert on it, and I'm going to tell you why you're wrong and so forth. So everybody has an opinion, but I just love when Jesus comes in and he says, so many times before he even starts speaking, he says, most assuredly I say to you, or I tell you the truth. He doesn't want us to be deceived. God hates when people are deceived. He hates deception, and that's the primary weapon of choice for the devil, for Satan, the fallen angel that, that, that's wreaking havoc on, in this world. He uses deception. He doesn't come right out and say, hey, look at me, I'm the devil, I'm going to you know, try to take you to hell. He doesn't do that. He's very, very deceptive. And I, I was speaking at a, um, a men's event at Calvary Chapel Sonora, this week, and um, they didn't have to talk me into it too much. They had lobster and tri-tip, and you know, and so I'm like, okay, you know, I, I I'll pray about it, but I'm pretty sure I want to be there, you know. And so uh, I was there, and we were talking about self-deception, and I, I I had them raise their hand. Who here is self-deceived, you know? And I was trying to see if anybody could raise their hand because if you're self-deceived, you don't know it. So there's no way you could raise your hand there. And um, I did get into other things that were more, you know, beneficial than just that question. But we don't, he doesn't want us to be deceived. He wants us to know the truth. And he wants us to love, but love must be governed by truth. Very important for us to understand that. Truth is the GPS, so to speak, of love. Truth guides our love. Love tells me, or truth rather, tells me where I am in relationship to the person I'm aiming to love. Truth tells me why I'm loving. Truth tells me why they should receive my love. Truth tells me if my love is the kind of love that they need. But also, truth tells me if my love is misplaced. And that's the heart of Second John. Because their love was being misplaced uh, related to their expression of it. And so, the love of the recipients to whom John was writing, had a misplaced love, and they were, or they were in danger of misplacing their love, and he wants to warn them about that. So that's what he's getting at. Now he starts in verse 1 with the elder. And he says, To the elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. So he starts by introducing himself. This is the only time that I'm aware of in the New Testament where one of the leaders that starts a letter starts with the elder, singular, the singular elder. And, and we don't know if it was based on his physical age or if it was based on his spiritual uh, authority or office 
related to them. Most likely it was both. It cracks me up when I see Mormon missionaries around and they're 18 years old and they're called elder so-and-so. It's like, you know, to me, I don't respect that very much for many reasons, but I mean, you might as well be called Elder Fudd because I, I, I'm, I just mean, you know, you're 18, you're barely out of puberty and you're, you know, wanting to be an elder. I mean, there's a reason why they called them elders because usually the people that were entrusted with spiritual oversight were more mature because they had grown in their faith and so forth and they were older. Now, the, the Apostle John, again, is, he's in his 80s or 90s here and the average lifespan was 45 in that time. So he has doubled, basically, life expectancy of that time there. And so he's respected as someone that's older. We don't have that in our culture as much anymore. In other cultures, and in the other side of the world, it's very much uh, heated in terms of respecting elderly people. They see them as a treasure. They see them as having gone through life and learned many things in life. And I want to learn from that, and I want to respect them for what they've gone through. Today, they, they're not really considered that and that's a shame and so here he is saying the elder there I'm a spiritual elder I'm physically I'm an elder I'm elderly and so forth and I have a lot to say and he says to this person the elect lady and her children now some people ask you know who is this is he talking is this figurative language is he referring to the lady as a church and then the people in the church as her children or is it a literal lady and her physical children I I don't think anybody could know for sure I tend to believe it was a literal lady with literal children Uh, and so and mainly because there's the singular and the and the and the plural language goes back and forth like there's some of it he's speaking uh, to the lady Obviously, it means for everybody, too, but also he speaks in plural form to, to everybody else. And so I believe it was a physical lady that, he, that she's elect, and we're all, every believer is elect. There, she's a, she's a, she wants, he wants her to know that she is chosen by God, and that's, that's something that we need to know, that we're elected, that God elects us. He doesn't elect us to the neglect of free will. And I don't understand how God does all that, but he doesn't ask me to comprehend it. Nowhere in the scriptures does he say, you need to fully understand how I elect and choose and that I've also given you the responsibility to choose. He doesn't tell us to reconcile those things. It's, it's, it's mystery to us, but he does it. So she, he says here, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. So here he begins to introduce the concept of loving in truth. And notice he uses the word twice. He says, whom I love in truth, and then he says, but not also, but also all those who have known the truth. So again, we have to love in truth. We have to have our love based in reality, and that's the foundation of our love. Then he tells them her something that's really, I, I just love his heart. He says, I love you. I, I love you in the truth, but it's not just me, because look at the end of verse 1. He says, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth and we could pass over that but the apostle john by the spirit wants this lady to know and all those that associated with her children and so forth if she probably had a a a fellowship group in her home or they the church probably met there at some point but he, he he's trying to let them know how much he loves them and he's trying to let them know how much all those that know them that are in the truth that are believers that they love them as well. And I, and I think we could pass over that, but we need to know that God's people love us. How many people love you today? How many people really love you today? 
Because he's saying that true love, the kind of love that we should value the most, is a result of someone's spiritual, uh, their, their spiritual orientation, that they're in the truth there. Because he says at the end of verse 1, not only I, but also those who have known the truth. Well, we know a lot of people that have not known the truth, right? Who claim to love us. And that's great. But we need to really value the people that love us who are in the truth. God seems in, to, in this verse to put a higher premium on that kind of love. Those that are loving us who are in the truth, which is the family of God. That's who John's speaking about. Those who are in the family of God, who know Christ, that love these people. And he wants them to know that those people love them. We need to know that other people love us that are in the truth. So that means that I, as a Christian, need to express that to other people, just like John's expressing it to them. I, as a Christian, need to be willing to say, I love you. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't just use that word flippantly, of course, but we still need to say it. We still need to demonstrate it, and we need to let it be encouraging to them as God intends it to be encouraging to them. Could pass over it very easily. Now notice he tells them how long the truth will be with us in verse 2. He says, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. And we can pass over that. But the truth abides in us. The word abide means to, to dwell. The truth dwells in us. Because when we came to know the Lord, when we first came to know him, our spiritual eyes were opened. We got to see what, the, what was really going on behind the scenes. That there's a battle between good and evil. And ultimately, God's behind all of what's going on in this world in terms of just being sovereign over everything. And and that the enemy is there wreaking havoc and so forth. He's on a leash and he has to have permission. We see that in the book of Job for for, uh, him to do anything to us. He has to have permission. God is sovereign. The enemy is not sovereign. Uh, and, And so the truth lives in us because we've had our our hearts regenerated. We've had our spirits regenerated. He's come in and made our dead spirits alive. And we now we have that relationship with God that we were intended to have, that sin got in the way of. So he says, because of the truth which now, which abides in us and will be with us forever. We, if you're a child of God here, abiding in Christ, you will always have the truth in you. You'll always have the spirit of truth in you. And you'll always have the truth of God living inside of us. And there's an expectation that God has. He wants us to spread the truth. He wants our lives to represent truth. If the truth lives in us and is going to live within us forever, he wants our lives to be honest and truthful and open and, and, and uh, be transparent so that people can uh, encounter God through our lives. It's a great encouragement. Now he, he, he greets them with a common greeting. In verse 3 he says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. So it's very common in the New Testament, especially with Paul, to to greet with grace and peace. And there's only two other books, Titus and 1 Timothy, that add this mercy in here. And and I and of course with John here. And and I love that. And it grace always comes before the other things. Always comes before peace, always comes before mercy. Grace was a greeting that the, the Gentiles had at that time. They would say charis, which means you, know, how, you should have a better, I want you to have a better day than you deserve. 
And then the, the Jews would say shalom or peace and so forth. So he's kind of bringing those two worlds together. But he's also communicating that God's grace needs to be applied to our lives first before we can have peace, before we can have mercy. And the world tries to get mercy. The world tries to get peace and so forth. But they're trying to do it on their own, on their own terms. God says you have to come my way and receive grace first. And if you come my way, I'll give you grace and then I will give you the peace and mercy that you are seeking. But he adds something different here in this verse that no of the other authors do when they greet in this way. He says something related to the future tense. Notice he says grace, mercy, and peace will be with you. So he's giving them a pronouncement of something. And he's saying, these things will be with you. And that's encouraging because God wants us to have grace. He wants us to have mercy. He wants us to have peace. And so we don't just experience grace in the beginning when we first receive Christ. We receive grace on and on in our Christian walk. And we're going to be learning about the riches of his grace all through eternity, we're told in Scripture. So he says, this will be with you. And he says, from whom? From God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Now those are our two words again at the end of verse 3. He brings up truth again, and he brings up love. And he's not just bringing up love. It has to be governed by something. It has to be governed by truth. So he's building upon that. Then in verse 4, he says, I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth, as we receive commandment from the Father. So he, he's encouraging her. I have found some of your children walking in, in, in the truth. There's our word again, truth again. And he says, I rejoiced greatly. And it's the Holy Spirit working in John's heart to have him be able to express that. Because it's God's heart. God rejoices greatly. And he has moved upon the Apostle John in his writing to express that in the same way that he's, he, God has given the Apostle John that joy over the fact that, that these children were walking in truth. He doesn't say all of them. Notice he says some of them. So he's focusing on the, the ones that are walking in truth and not fixating upon the ones that aren't. Now, the longer you walk with the Lord, and again, the Apostle John's an, an, an old man now. The longer you walk with the Lord, the more you focus on encouraging those that are doing what's right. And you don't get bogged down. You still speak the truth, but you don't get bogged down on those that are walking in disobedience. You don't fixate upon it. You don't let it, you know, take you away from what you're called to do and say and so forth. And he's focusing on the ones that are doing well. And that's good. We shouldn't only mention the things that, that are going on in someone's life that they're struggling with or they have children that are struggling, whatever. We need to focus on what what's going right in the situation. And that's what, that's what he says. He says, your children who are walking in truth. But he says, we received something early on. He says, as we received commandment from the Father. So we have received, past tense, commandment from God. To walk in truth, to live our lives in the truth. That means our speech, that means our motivation, it means what we do. All of those things have to line up with Scripture. God the Father has commanded each one of his children to walk in truth. Now he continues in verse 5. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning that we love one another. So he's pleading with her. That's, that's not a small thing. He's pleading. 
can't force her. He's pleading for her to, to walk in love. And he says, this isn't something new I'm telling you. He's, this is something you've heard from the very beginning. So that's one of, that should be the first thing that we cover in a Christian foundation class or helping with new believers. Obviously, you know, John knew that they had received this from the very, very beginning, that we should love one another. We focus on a lot of things in these classes, and it's, it's great. We should. We need to focus on doctrine. We need to focus on salvation and the Trinity and all these things, the, the, the veracity of God's word, all these things. But we also need to cover practical things, things that affect our lives and our interpersonal relationships. And he says the very foundation that what God says to us as new believers is that we should love one another. So he's, he's wanting them to know this is something that we need to do. So we need to ask ourselves, are we loving? Are we loving people? Are we seeing needs? Are we recognizing that people have need and then we're offering our help and we're serving? Because love is sacrificial. The God kind of agape love that he gives us is sacrificial. It costs us something. So he says, I plead with you. And I, I believe God's pleading with us. And he'll continue to plead with us to love one another and, and to follow through with that which he's told us from the beginning of our walk. And then he defines love in verse 6. He says, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. So, wait a minute, I thought love was a feeling. Well, don't you hear that in TV and entertainment or the world just says, you know, I just... I want to love you, but I just don't have that, I'm not going to say a loving feeling song, but, you know, I want to love you, but I just, it just, it just, I can't, I can't because it's a feeling, and that is a lie. This is love, he says, that you walk according to his commandments. So it's his, it's his expression of love towards us that we have commandments to obey. We've gone over that when we went through First John, he said that. It's an expression of his love that we obey commandments. He knows that his commandments aren't burdensome and they're what's best for us. And so he says, this is love. But I think mainly he's talking about, this is how our love, that we express our love to God, that we walk according to his commandment. It's a way of life. So he says, be careful to walk in this. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then he said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Ouch. That's convicting. Because none of us perfectly do what Jesus calls us to do. But he says, if you love me, if you claim to love me, then obey my commandments. Now that causes me to go to his word. It causes me to grow in learning what his commandments are. Because it's hard for me to obey that which I'm ignorant of. But his main, his main commandment that he's talking about is his commandment to love one another. And to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Those are the two great commandments. To love God with everything and to love our neighbor with everything. And he says the whole entire law hangs on those. And so if we, if we fulfill that, then we fulfill the law. Now notice in verse 7 he gets to the false teachers. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. 
It's like we're reading 1 John all over again, right? Because he talked about this whole thing about denying that Jesus came in the flesh. And that belief is the spirit of Antichrist. So maybe you weren't here. I'll just go over that real quick. Jesus is God. He is divine. He is God in human flesh. He is the Son of God, yes, but he's also God the Son. And so he became flesh and dwelt among us. The Apostle John's already said that in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 14. So he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later in verse 14 he said, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. These Gnostics were teaching that Jesus didn't come, or God didn't come in human flesh. That there was Jesus, the human, and that the Christ Spirit came upon him at his baptism, and then before he died on the cross, that Christ Spirit left him. But but he didn't actually, he wasn't actually God in human flesh. And he's saying, that's false. So he says, many deceivers have gone out. Did you see that? Many deceivers. Just like in 1 John, he said, many false prophets have gone into the world. They're the same thing. Deceivers and false prophets are synonymous with each other. But he says, they've gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. And we saw the word confess means to agree with, to say the same thing as. When you confess to your wife, if you're married, that you should have picked up your clothes on the floor, you're saying the same thing she's been saying to you for a long time. You need to pick up those clothes and put them in the hamper. You know, did you not see the hamper? You know, you're saying the same thing as she says when you confess that. And so he says, these deceivers have gone out into the world. They do not say the same thing as what we're saying related to Christ as coming in the flesh. He says, this is a deceiver and an anti-Christ. Now there will come the Antichrist, who will embody all of this. And he will rule on this earth for seven years. And he'll break a covenant with Israel in the middle of those seven years, and he'll start persecuting the Jews. And I believe what goes into that before that middle of the seven-year tribulation is he's going to help finance their, their third temple to be built. And they're making all the preparations right now to build that temple and to, have, to be able to furnish it with all the necessary things. And so I believe that that's going to be part of this peace contract he makes with Israel. But in the middle of the seven years, he breaks it, turns on the Jews, and then the great tribulation occurs, the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation, and then it culminates with the second coming of Christ. And we're coming behind the Lord Jesus at that time coming to earth for that Uh, beginning of the thousand-year reign. So there is a Antichrist, the the main one, but the spirit of Antichrist has been around since the very beginning. So anyone that denies that... So people say out there, Jesus is a great person, or he's a great teacher, he's a prophet, but he wasn't God in human flesh. And they could be really nice people that say that, really respectable people. But the Bible says right here, if they deny that, that God came in human flesh that they're, they're, they're of the spirit of Antichrist. And they may, obviously may not even know it, but that, that he, he gives us the clear distinction there at the end of verse 7. Then he gives us an exhortation in verse 8. He says, Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Now he's going to get into the specifics of what that is in a minute, but it includes... You know, the, we don't want to start believing this false doctrine and so forth. We don't want start wanting to um, demonstrate our love for uh, these people, these false teachers, because we may lose a reward. And some Christians say, I don't care about my reward. I just want to be in heaven, and that's good enough. And that's a noble expression. But I want you to consider something. 
God, God emphasizes to us about our rewards, which means that we need to care about our rewards. If he cares about our rewards, we need to care about our rewards in heaven. And just like any good father, they care more about something they give their children than the children ever did. And it blesses the father's heart way more at Christmas or, or at a uh, birthday or whatever to bless their children than the children get blessed. We know that. If you have kids, you, you know that. So we, we never think about the rewards that God wants to give us from his perspective. He wants to bless us with gifts. He's going to be blessed by giving us gifts. So he says, I don't want you to lose your reward. Of course, you're not going to benefit by, by doing that. But also, I look at it from my standpoint and I say, then he's not going to be blessed. And we should want everything that occurs in our lives to be a blessing to him. He is worthy of more than all of that. And he's worthy for sure of at least that. So he says that we have to look to ourselves. Now, he's not saying trust in yourselves or do all this in your own strength to reject these false teachers. But he is saying you need to take responsibility for that. And that's a good exhortation for us, to be well-grounded in God's word. And you're thinking, well, maybe, you know, I'm not going to get deceived by these major cults or major religions or whatever, but there's a lot other deception going on that's more subtle, that's within Christianity, and we can fall for those things. He doesn't want us to fall for one single bit of false teaching. And it requires us to have what's called a working knowledge of the scriptures, which requires us to be in the scriptures daily and to be studying and learning and so forth. And every time, that's why we go through the scriptures in part, so that we'll be grounded and we won't be fooled by any false teaching that's out there. So he says, look to yourselves, take responsibility for it. Don't fall for these things. We're told elsewhere to study to show ourselves approved. And that's what we we need to do. Now, he says, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So what's the doctrine of Christ? Well, he's already defined it for us. Jesus coming in the flesh. That's the doctrine of Christ. To believe that Jesus condescended to this earth, took on a human nature, not a sinful human nature, a perfect human nature. And so he... He, is, he was and is God, of course, and he, he came and he took on an additional nature. So he, he never stopped being God. There's a heresy out there that when he came to earth, he gave up his divine nature. That's, that's heresy. He never stopped being God. He took on an additional perfect human nature. And, and that's how he could pay the price for our sins. So he says, whoever does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. People claim all the time that, they're, that they have God. But they deny that Jesus came in the flesh and that he was God in human flesh. And so the, God's word says they, are, they don't have God no matter what they say, no matter how big their ministries are, no matter how big their, their church is. If they don't believe that, they are not of God. And he says, if he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So we have both of them. Verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine... Do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Now we're getting to the heart of what he's getting at in this, in this book. Because I, I told you that they have heard about love, they were loving to, to, in some ways, and they were growing and so forth, but they were extending their love to those that they shouldn't. And so here, the context and the culture at that time is accommodations, because they had these itinerant preachers that would come, and Paul 
warned about this in many different places, and, and these itinerant preachers would come around, and they would, there wasn't a, a you know, Holiday Inn on every corner. So it was hard for them to get accommodations, and so they would rely upon the church to do that. And, and, but people took advantage of that. False teachers would come, and they would just stay, and you know, they, they would never have any plans of leaving, and they take advantage of people. And so because of that, they made a rule that if that the apostles did, that if, there, if anyone stayed longer than two or three days, I forget which it was, but it was a very short time, he's a false teacher. Just, we're going to make that rule. Everybody knows about it, so just know that. And so that's what they were supposed to do. But they, what they were doing is they were taking these false teachers in, and they were loving these false teachers, and they were aiding them. They were helping them. So that's why their love needs to be governed by truth. Because these false teachers were falling short of truth. They were teaching heresy. They weren't of God. That's why he says, because you know that these people are going to feel bad. You know, well, they say they're of God and we want to help them. And they don't, they don't have God. If they deny the doctrine of Christ, they don't have God. And he said, you shouldn't take them in. And that's why he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, again, God coming in human flesh, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. Now, greeting is a little bit different than our the way that we greet. My wife Sandy always laughs how guys will greet people walking down the street. You know, what do we do as guys? Because why do you guys do that? Girls don't do that. They don't walk down the road and go, you know, to another woman. Well, us guys, that's I don't know. It's in our DNA or something. But that's what's up. We don't even say the what's up. We just, you know. And but we have all these different ways of greeting. Hi, how you doing? You know, we have the, of just saying hello to someone. This is, goes beyond that. When they would greet somebody, they would be connecting with them. They'd be fellowshipping with them. They would be embracing them, kissing them on the cheek. They were, I mean, it wasn't just a hi, how you doing, or a head nod. Uh, it was, it was I'm, I'm, I'm becoming one with you in a sense. I mean, I'm, I'm fellowshipping with, with you and so forth. And so he's saying, don't even do that. Don't, whoever brings this doctrine, don't receive him into your house nor greet him for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. And that's the key to understanding what this is. Because when, when you help this, this having them stay at your house or, or to, to give them a meal or whatever, you are helping them. Now we want to show unconditional love to unbelievers. Even false teachers, we want to love them in the sense of trying to reach them for Christ and give them the truth. But we don't want to aid them and help them in what they're doing. If we help them in any way, then we, he says in verse 11, we are sharing in their evil deeds. So we don't want to help them. We, want, we don't want to say, God bless you. We don't want to give them water. We don't want to, I mean, anything. We don't want to help them. If it's going to help them continue their teaching in any way, giving them physical sustenance or giving them strength or encouragement or whatever we don't want to do that whatsoever now what this doesn't mean is that an unsaved relative who's in a cult or in another religion that we can't have him in our house we can't you know he's not talking about that he's talking about giving them a platform and also aiding them in their um, continuance of their doctrine and aiding them somehow so when we talk to cultists at our at our doorstep we, you know, we don't want to let them come into our house and have a platform there in our house. We can talk to them right out on, on the doorstep. We don't want to aid them in any way. We don't want to take their literature. They get brownie points for that. Seriously, they get points for that related to their eternal uh, destiny. We don't want to aid in that. We don't want to give them money. We don't want to, we don't, we want to preach the gospel to them. That's the one thing they need to hear. They need to hear the gospel. Now, I want you to think about 
if, especially if we prayed, Lord, give me more opportunities to, to, to preach your gospel and to be a light and so forth. And we have these people coming to our homes. They're coming to us. They're interested in spiritual things. And I know they have a supernatural ability to come at the wrong time. I mean, it's just uncanny how they come at the wrong time. I understand that. I've been very inconvenienced myself. But there are people that are lost. Think about this. Just look what we enjoy as believers. Think about how much we enjoy knowing Christ and being in the truth. He's been talking about truth, 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 truth. They're in error. And we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that the devil appears as an angel of light, so it's no surprise that his servants appear as workers of righteousness. So we can't judge them by their appearance. They look better than we do, most of them. You know, they look and they're like, you're in great shape. You know, you're riding your bike around and you know, you're, you know, you're young and whatever and you look spiritual and you're using all the right terminology, but they fail the test, especially with the doctrine of Christ of God and human flesh. Because all the cults deny that Jesus is the creator. They all, they have a different identity for him. So this may be an exhortation for some of us. And I know we're all growing, myself included. People are coming to our doors. That's a mission field right there. And we don't have to know all the answers to be able to share with them. We know that we've been saved. We know that we're Christians. We know that our lives have been different and so forth. And, and it's a ministry of planting seeds. There is a harvest time. But most of the time we're planting seeds and we're allowing the Lord to water those seeds and so forth when we're sharing. But there's still lost people. There's still people for whom Christ died. And so we have to realize that, have, a, have a, a, a desire for them to be saved because God's heart is that they would be saved. But we don't want to have them come into our home, make them comfortable and so forth, and aid them in what they're doing. So keep them on the front porch, be loving, be polite and so forth, but preach the truth, preach the word of God to them. You're not going to be perfect in doing that. None of us are. And you're not going to, you can feel at times, I'm not really making a difference. You have no idea what happens in their heart and in their mind over time. God's word won't return void. It's powerful. And so a lot of times those things start churning in their hearts and in their minds for long periods of time before they come out of that. I met um, a guy who was in the uh, watchtower for 50 years and came out. I know another gentleman that was high, high up. He, in fact, he helped dedicate the Oakland Temple. And he came out. But, and and he, they talk about Christians that so many of them wouldn't share with 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 them all the times they talked to them they wouldn't share with them and there was a few that did and they they never forgot what they said to them so it's so does it require us studying to show ourselves approved and being equipped yes that helps us that helps us be more effective but we have to remember they are unsaved they are people for whom christ died and and sometimes it requires hard work for us to be in the harvest field he said, pray that there would be more workers that, that would come into the harvest field. It's work. Yes, it requires study. Yes, it requires knowing what we believe. But God is patient and he helps us along those lines and he will use what we say to these people. You know, the people that are the least prepared to talk about salvation being a gift are Jehovah's Witnesses. I've had them stare at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and they just can't believe that it uses the word gift. <laughs> and I say, well, can you earn a gift? If I wanted to give you my watch right now, you gave me money for it, would it be payment or would it be a gift? It would be a payment. So you can't pay for a gift, right? No, you can't. Well, how come salvation is a gift? And yet you're going door to door doing all these things to get salvation and get to eternal life when God says it's a gift. And in Titus 2, it says, not by any righteous works that we have done, but by his mercy he saved us. You know, And they're the least prepared. They'll talk about the Trinity all day long. And we can talk about the Trinity. I'm not saying don't do that. 
But there's so many different places the Lord can take us as we share with them. And remember, you have the Spirit of God. You have the truth. Your life has been changed. We don't need to be intimidated by them. We need to preach the truth and be bold. So it's a great mission field, but we don't want to share in what they're doing by aiding them and helping them as we show unconditional love for them. Verse 12. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. He just loves them and he wants to see them. He knows that all of their joy will be made full if he can just see them face to face. And then he says, the children of your elect sister greet you. So evidently there's those that he knew that was related to this lady that that uh, his, her nieces and nephews or whatever, and he says, they greet you. And he says, amen, that's the truth. So it's a fast book, uh, 13 verses. There's a lot here. The, I think the main point here, though, is love with the truth navigating. Love governed by truth. We can't, we, sometimes when we say the truth to people, people say, oh, that's not loving. No, the, we're supposed to tell the truth or speak the truth in love. But we have to tell the truth. Truth without love is, is harsh, but love without truth is empty. And so we have to have both of those things. You can't have one without the other if you're going to do it the biblical way. Let's pray together. Lord, just thank you that we're in the truth. And I pray, Father, that you would help all of us to take our calling seriously, to preach your gospel. Lord, help us to do so in a way that pleases you. And help us to love everybody in truth, Lord in a way that would be appropriate according to your word. Give us discernment and give us knowledge of how to love appropriately, Lord. We don't want to share in the sins of people that are preaching error, but we want to reach them for you. And so we thank you, Lord, that you have a seeking and saving heart. We ask that you would give us a portion of your great heart towards the lost, Lord, and we'd be very serious about the Great Commission. Thank you, Lord, that you've called us to be out in this world preaching your gospel. And we thank you that, that it's powerful all by itself. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.